0: The sixth chapter of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Yet once again, Father, you have given to us life and breath and all good things, and most of all, the indwelling of your Spirit to help us to understand the word that you have inspired We offer to you our depth of gratitude that you have not left us to our own devices, and we pray that young and old, that each one of us will submit his heart, his life, to the teaching of Holy Scripture. And as this chapter helps us to understand what sanctification is all about, growth in grace progressively, we ask that you will help us not to forget it, but to take it to heart. And indeed, as you have taught us from the first portion of this chapter, teach us from the second, that we may be a people determined to be those who live holy lives. And we ask and pray these things in the name of Christ, the Redeemer, the Justifier, but also the Sanctifier of His people. Amen. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 15, this is the Word of God. "'What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace?' "...have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you will recall that the Apostle is dwelling upon the theme of our sanctification, our growth in grace in this sixth chapter of the book of Romans. And that he stressed in the previous verses our union with Christ. To recap what he says in his argument, he says this, I am in union with Christ, I have a new identity. Baptism is the sign of that new identity, of that union. It means that the first volume of my biography is shut and a new portion has now begun. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ means that there has been a decisive breach with sin and that I now have a new Lord. I reckon this to be, that is, I realize that it is true, I get it deep down within, sin and law have no claim on me because of my union with Christ. Therefore I will not live as I once did, to do so contradicts my whole identity, rather I yield myself to the God who redeemed me. Now that's his argument in the first portion of chapter 6. But now in chapter 6, 15 through 23, the verses we have just read, he argues in another, though complementary, way. He argues from the perspective of our new slavery to God. And it is that argument to which we now turn. Will you notice in verse 15 that it starts in the same way as verse 1 starts? In verse 1 we read, "...what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means." And in verse 15, "...what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means." Essentially the same way. The same question, essentially, with the same answer. He's concerned with the same issue, only now from a different angle." In verse 3 the angle is, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now the angle that begins in verses 15 and 16 is, do you not know that if you yield yourselves to any one as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one of whom you obey? And so our sanctification is looked at from the angle of slavery, so, in verses 1 through 14, he wants you to know that by union with Christ, you are dead to sin's mastery and alive to God. In verses 15 through 23, Paul wants us to know that we are committed to obey the master whose slave we are. Now, let's begin by understanding that everyone is a slave. Paul makes that plain here. Everyone serves one master or the other, everyone serves sin or Christ. There is really no in between. These are the two issues. And Paul in this passage contrasts the two slaveries and the results of those two slaveries. So as we move into the text, let's first see slavery to sin, and we read about it in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. A slave to sin is under sin's domination, under sin's complete control and power. The whip is in sin's hand. You remember how the Lord Jesus put it in John chapter 8, verse 34, "...truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin." If sin is your lifestyle, if you have not been regenerated, then sin is your ultimate commitment. The slavery to sin is total. The slavery to sin is universal. That doesn't mean that it always is going to show in the same way in every person. But no person will be, outside of Christ, committed to the glory of God and living for His honor. The slavery is total. Now without rehearsing the various verses to which we might often turn, let me simply remind you that the scriptures teach that our minds are enslaved outside of Christ, our affections are enslaved outside of Christ, that is the sinner loves what he should hate and he hates what he should love, and his will is also enslaved so that we we may not speak appropriately of a free will but we speak of bondage of the will though enslaved he does the sinner does freely follow freely obeys we read in verse 20 of this uh, chapter when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness and we read again in verse 16 Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so the will is free to follow its natural propensities, which outside of Christ is always sin. Those enslaved are free from the good and free to do evil. It is a slavish freedom, a miserable spectacle, The sinner can do nothing about it. He is in total bondage. I mean nothing. Really, the scriptures teach that. He can do nothing to set himself free. Luther, in his great book, The Bondage of the Will, written against the the humanist uh, Erasmus, uh, makes the statement that free choice without the grace of God is not free at all, but immutably the captive and slave of sin, since it cannot of itself turn to the good. Now, that's what Paul is saying here. That's the sinner outside of Christ. That's his slavery. That's the domination over his life. But God is greater than our sin, greater than our rebellious will. And so we turn now from this miserable spectacle to the main points of Paul's concern, which is the Christian slavery to righteousness. That's the second thing slavery to righteousness. And Paul begins to elucidate that in verse 17 by saying, but thanks be to God. In other words, here's what it was. It was dark. It was awful. But God has done something great now. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now I wonder, does it surprise you in some ways that the apostle speaks about slavery That is to say that he speaks not only of slavery to sin, but actually slavery to righteousness. After all, Paul in chapter 8 will underscore our adoption as sons. But Paul has already called himself God's bond slave in the very first chapter. And Peter similarly tells us that to act as free men means to act as bond slaves of God in 1 Peter 2.16. So you see it is a joyful enslavement by grace and to grace. That's the point of verse 17. Those who find themselves here were delivered to this joyful and gracious slavery. It is a passive, by the way, um, in the original. It's something to which you have been delivered. You didn't deliver yourselves. It is God's gracious intervention into our lives And when the gospel came to you, you obeyed it from your heart, you were captivated by it, the Apostle Paul says in essence. We are by grace set free from sin's dominion. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We were slaves to sin from birth, but became captives to God by means of the gospel of God's sovereign grace. So there has been a change of masters. Once the master was Satan, now it is God. Once we were members of the kingdom of darkness, now we are members of the kingdom of light. Wonder. Once we were under the domination of sin, now we are under the domination of the movement of righteousness in our lives. We were slaves to sin from birth, but had become captives to God by means of the gospel. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thy eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and followed thee. This is essentially what Paul is teaching in this chapter. This is the new slavery. The new slavery of free grace. We have a new master whom we now follow... The will, to use Luther's image in his great book, The Bondage of the Will, the will like a horse has a new rider. One will live in service either to sin or one will live in service to righteousness. There is no other option. To be free from sin means that now we are committed to righteousness. God has delivered you from your old bondage. Anders Nygren in his commentary says for the Christian the throne from which sin has been removed has never left unoccupied that place has been taken by righteousness and the truly remarkable thing here is that now there is obedience from the heart notice again verse 17 but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin <clears throat> have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In view of what the Scriptures teach about the bondage of the will... and the depravity of the human heart outside of Christ... will you see, do you see that this is the miracle of grace? That the heart has now been so radically transformed by the gospel... that we love the Christ that we once hated. We want to follow God's Word that we once despised and did not believe... Only grace could do this. Only God and His grace could do this to our hearts. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we long to keep His commandments, though we still struggle, and though we fail, and though we fall, yet the dominion of sin is done away with in our lives. And now that heart that once hated God now loves Him and begins imperfectly but really to obey. God is to be thanked for this. Only he could have done such a wonderful and marvelous thing. And we are unable to make progress. That is, we are now able to begin to grow in grace. Paul is not saying in this chapter anything like sinless perfection, you understand. He is not saying that the Christian will not struggle. As a matter of fact, next time, next Lord's Day evening, we, we hope, to look at chapter 7, in which he talks about the inner struggle of the Christian in his obedience. He's not talking about sinless perfection. That won't happen until heaven. Not for any believer. But he is saying we really do have a heart that loves truth, loves God, and begins to obey. Really and truly to obey. And verse 19 underscores this progressive aspect. Look at verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see, it's progressive. Before coming to Christ, I was passive, but grace has changed my heart, and now I'm very active in pursuing the things of God. Grace produces, grace produced, grace-driven, spirit-directed effort toward the goal of our high calling in Christ Jesus. The Christian may not say, I can't obey, I can't change, I can't make progress. Yes, you can. Outside of Christ, it could not happen. But in Christ, you can change, you can grow, and you can make progress in your Christian walk and will. Stott says it well. This shows that the result of the slavery of sin is the grim process of moral deterioration, whereas the slavery of God results in the glorious process of a moral sanctification. Each slavery develops. Neither stands still. Now that's very profound. And that's the implication of verse 19. Each slavery to Satan, to sin and its domination, or to God, to grace and righteousness that now dominates, each one makes progress. The downhill devolution of the heart outside of Christ, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into rebellion. And the growth in grace, not a straight line on a graph, but toward the goal that happens as God progressively grows us in holiness of life. But you will not stand still in either case. Now these two slaveries produce two different kinds of fruit. So let's look at the fruit and that's the third thing we see. The different fruit produced. In verse 20 we read, When you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness. Regarding benefits, results, fruits. The fruit of slavery to sin, well, the first fruit, of course, is shame. For he goes on to say in verse 21, But what fruits were you getting at that time from things of which you are now ashamed? Phillips translates it in his paraphrase, things you blush to remember. You know, a Christian looking back feels self-abasement and deep gratitude. Because, of, because the end of those things that once dominated my life would have led ultimately to eternal separation from God. I was dominated by death. Thomas Goodwin, before preaching, if his heart was too proud, took a walk up and down in his former sins, he would say. John Newton had Deuteronomy 15 15 above his study desk. You know that verse. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. So it's good for us to remember where we were and to see what God has done. The fruit of slavery to righteousness is holiness. Uh, for he says in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The fruits of slavery, this new slavery by grace, is righteousness, holiness if you will. Justification gives us the title to heaven, but sanctification fits us for heaven. Justification gives us the title to heaven because we are completely and utterly accepted, but our hearts are being fitted for heaven progressively in our Christian lives until God calls us home. So let's be very concrete. Let me give you some examples of how this will work out in the lives of believers. A man who has sinned against his wife by causing an environment in which she is in bondage to his abuse... If he is free in Christ and has a new master, he will believe and repent and progressively so as he is confronted with the word of God. If he's not a believer, he will perhaps confess it, but as Peter puts it, return as a dog to his vomit. His heart will rage against correction because it rubs up against his lust and his desires. Another example... A church member is called to encourage leadership and to make the leadership's work a joy. And when he fails, he reads the Word of God, he repents, and he comes again and he begins to encourage and he changes. An unbeliever will have a secret delight in his independence and rally people around for dissension, but a believer will be obedient to the call of God. Another example... Someone's very loose with his tongue. He's not careful about how he speaks of others. Perhaps he is very deeply involved in gossip. But then the word of God comes to him. And he hears God's word. And he believes and he repents. And he begins to replace that language with speech that is right and appropriate because he has a new master and because he has a new domination over his life. Another example, a party. I mean the kind of party to which you go and where you're supposed to have fun. Uh, I've been to a couple of those. Um, A party will, I try not to stay long, but uh, uh, a party will often look differently for a group of Christians and a group of unbelievers. And you know that's true. For Christians to gather and get plastered is a great sin against God and neighbor. When Christians are confronted with God's Word, they will repent of these things. But these things are, for many unbelievers, just their bread and butter. I mean, they live for this on the weekend or any time they can get it. The Christian is being fitted for heaven and will not be plastered in heaven, but will enjoy fellowship with God. And so he believes, he repents, he grows progressively, he changes. Or, to give another example... The language that we use as Christians should be different from that of the world. I have in mind here cursing and bitterness. Colossians chapter 3.8 says, "...Rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips." 2 Peter 2.7 tells us that Lot was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men... And Paul says in Ephesians 5.4 that there must not be among Christians any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. In other words, our language betrays our identity. How we speak says something about the person to whom we belong, who our master is. Whether or not we are dominated by grace... Or dominated by sin. So coarse, unedifying speech is sin. And the Christian will repent of this when confronted with God's word. Now these are just examples I give. You can readily increase those examples by simply looking at your life. Determining where those areas of life are in which you need to make progress in your Christian walk. And applying what Paul the Apostle has to say to your life. Sanctification really is loving the Lord. Growth in grace is just saying, Lord, you've saved me and I love you. Your spirit is at work in my life. You've not left me in kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. You brought me into your light. Now I want to live more and more and more in the light into which you brought me. And so the fruit of loving the Lord will be different than the fruit of loving the world. Again, Nigrin. it is actually true that one sees better what service to righteousness means to the Christian when it is compared with what service of sin means to the natural man. With what inner urge and spontaneity, with what eagerness and joy, the natural man gives himself to the service of sin, even though it means to him genuine bondage. Is there any good reason why the Christian should be more slothful and indifferent, less willing and joyous in the service of God, which means genuine freedom to him? And yet the words of Jesus in Luke 16, 8 are relevant here The sons of this world, that is this age, are wiser in their generation than the sons of light. The children of the new eon, that's us, have much to learn from the children of this age, both in wisdom and in foresight, in energy and willingness of service. Do you see what he's saying? The children of this age run after their disobedience, long to follow the way of the world. Desire to be disobedient to God. They make no bones about it. Well, should we who are children of light, children of the, the age that is coming, that is broken into our lives through the resurrection of Jesus and the impartation of the Holy Spirit, should we be less zealous to follow God, to desire Him, to walk faithfully with Him? Surely not. And so you see, there are two final fruits that are contrasted. The ultimate goals to which these two different approaches to life will ultimately lead. The goals lead to totally, totally, the lives lead to totally different goals. One is death. Look at verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Slave owners in the Roman world paid an allowance, a peculium, pocket money. Heirs of death upon the principle of remuneration. That's what Paul is saying. It is owed. The ultimate end which leads to death is just signified and shown forth in the way the unbeliever lives and the ultimate goal is death and it is owed to the unbeliever. Death is earned. The laborer receives his wages. Sin deserves death. Physical death, of course, which has already taken place because of the fall of man. God's ultimate wrath, because God is angry with the wicked every day, says Psalm 711. And only the blood of Jesus can quench the fire of God's wrath. But then there is another life, the Christian life. And the ultimate goal to which God is leading the believer is not death but life, eternal life. We saw that here in verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unmerited favor, purely gratuitous in Christ, we do not earn it. The unbeliever earns his death. We do not earn eternal life. Why not? Because Christ earned it for us when He went to the cross and he paid the debt. And so sovereign grace excludes all human merit. We contribute nothing to our acceptance with God and to the ultimate goal which is eternal life. Someone has written, sin pays the wage we deserve which is death while God gives us a gift that we do not deserve which is eternal life. Well Let's go back to the question with which the Apostle began. Do you remember in the very first verse of chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And now look at verse 15 as he comes to this new section that we've been looking at. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. This is the great question that frames the entire chapter, both parts of the chapter. The question of Paul's opponents to his gospel and the same question that the evil one whispers in our ears and even your ears and mine today. Shall you not just continue in sin that grace may abound? God is a God of grace, so just sin and he'll show more grace. How do we answer when this question is whispered? You know the themes of this chapter by heart. You get them way down deep. You understand what Paul is saying. And then you can respond with Paul, Meganoita, by no means, no way, is a good free translation of what he's saying. The authorized version, God forbid. This masterful theology must master my life. This theme of union with Christ in those first 14 verses must master my life. I reckon myself dead to sin, alive to God. This masterful theology in verses 15 to the end of the chapter that I have a new master. This must master my life. So that we see it's extremely practical, isn't it? As all true theology is. Remember who you are. Union with Christ, slaves to God, constantly rehearse these truths. Paul says throughout this chapter, don't you know? Don't you understand? Don't you know? Well, yes. Yes, Lord, I know. I understand these things. And despite my sins and my failings, I am striving to live the Christian life. Christian, Christ is your Lord. You are no longer under the lordship of sin. Therefore, live it out. Be who you are in Christ. Amen. 578. <clears throat> The reason to look at the Son of God, goes forth the war is ultimately because he is the warrior who has conquered for us, conquers our hearts, our lives, gives us the ability to resist temptation and sin, and ultimately conquers the nations for Christ, <coughs> for the gospel.